When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, David Peterson and I covered Tyrion's seventh POV chapter. This is the introduction to Tywin Lannister. I have to ask, is there a better screen villain? Can you think of a better screen villain? I'm talking any screen ever. Can you think of a better screen villain? Let me give you a couple options here. Darth Vader, Hal from 2001, Magneto... Those are some of my favorites, but I would put Tywin ahead of all of them. Who am I missing? Send me an email, book at baldmove.com. The other thing I want to ask this week is where's the climax to this book? And I'll talk about that in the bird's eye view section. Steve and I cover The Broken Man. This is The Return of the Hound. But of course, I can't wait to talk about Tyrion with one of Tyrion's biggest fans. He's the inventor of High Valyrian and Dothraki. That's right, it is conlinguist extraordinaire David J. Peterson. Well, today we're talking about Tyrion Mm -hmm. and uh, looking at his seventh POV chapter. And David, I asked you specifically to cover this with me because, and, and I'll probably misquote you, but the last time I had you on, you said something along these lines. You said something like, Tyrion's always the smartest guy in any room he's he finds himself in, except when he's in the room with his father. Mm-hmm. And I think, and when you said that, you you almost sort of conveyed a little bit of reverence for Tywin. And I thought, I think I should bring David back on when Tywin actually gets introduced into this book. Oh, yeah. Tywin, first of all, Tywin is absolutely my favorite character, and I think one of the best characters in the entire series. Um, but I think it's very important that that everyone understands what I mean when I say that. I would not want Tywin to be my father. <laughs> all right, no, no. Tywin would any, not any more be than my you'd want friend. Darth Vader to be your father, right? Yeah, and I I don't think he is a you know good like moral character. I don't think he would be a good king, you know, for the the seven kingdoms. Uh, I think he's very bad, but I think that he is. I mean, uh, everybody I think who reads these books falls in love with Tyrion, um, mm-hmm. but it's like this is the this is the spice that he needs. It's something kind of like that you see a little bit in the later books. We when he meets up with Jorah, you get a little bit of that as uh, they have some neat interactions. Sure. But yeah. I mean these first three books uh tywin is a kind of necessary antagonist that really helps to counterbalance um Tyrion's character yeah and yeah. also i think uh, helps him with his growth as well as the series goes on because it's a, a really nice demonstration of um you know you can be you can be the smartest person in the room, but that doesn't necessarily make you the nicest or the best. Yeah. And it's, it's nice that I think Tyrion can kind of see that, but yeah, this, well, I will up the ante even more. So uh, here's what I've written down. Um, Tywin is among the best villains on any screen ever. (laughs) And I think now you can correct me. Uh, this may be sacrilege, <laughs> but I think that Tywin, as portrayed on the HBO adaptation, is actually better than Ty- Tywin on the page. And I mean, certainly in this book, we don't see a whole lot of Tywin in this book, and he absolutely becomes more robust 
uh, as the series goes on. But Charles Dance's depiction of this particular villain is, it could be my favorite villain. Um, so what, what do you think about that? Uh, I, I have to say, so first of all, um, it's one thing to read the books. It's another to uh, experience them as audiobooks, which is what I did uh, for the first time. I've actually never uh, read them silently to myself. Um, okay. I've only experienced them as audiobooks. Uh, four of them read by um, Roy Detrice. Right. Uh, the, the fourth one was not. I, I think he later went on to read the fourth one, but that was after I had uh, listened to it. Um, mm. And so uh, what I do is I get his take on Tywin, which is very, very different from Charles Dance's portrayal. And of course, you know, after okay. three books, I kind of got used to it. But he portrays him as kind of like very gruff. I don't know. <laughs> it's a, a very interesting voice choice and so i remember the first time that i saw charles dance playing tywin it was so different that it was a little bit jarring sure, but then it's yeah. like after a couple episodes i was like oh my god this guy really really gets this character yeah he is for me he absolutely is tywin and yeah no it's head and shoulders better than uh than the uh detrice version um and uh and yeah no it's it is absolutely something and it just makes me sad that of course that his his character couldn't stick around for longer but you know that's how the it's story true. goes and then i guess i was going to say something else about tywin and then we can get into the chapter proper mm-hmm. but um it's interesting that you say that his character is really important for tyrion and it makes sense now that i've heard you say it but you know, I've also said something like, you know, Tyrion's one of the more complex characters I've ever read in literature. Um, and it very well could be that a lot of that complexity is showcased when he gets to sort of bounce off Tywin a bit. Hmm. And so it's probably no no coincidence that one of my most <laughs> favorite, uh, you know, complex characters is the son of you know one of my favorite villains so i i appreciated you saying that it helps me appreciate both of them even more yeah i mean and their their interactions uh throughout these first three books are honestly my favorite part of the series yeah i'm gonna go ahead and read the introduction to the or read my synopsis of the chapter go for it Tyrion has amassed an army of mountain clan folk, including several that would like to see Lannister gold and steel, but also many who would happily see him dismembered for tasty goat treats. Chella, a female warrior and scout of the Black Years, brings news that an army with the sigil of a lion is camped nearby. Tyrion guesses that he will find his father or brother there and rides down to the encampment with a few of his new friends. Eventually, they find Tywin Lannister at the end of the crossroads. Tywin and his brother Kevin take turns explaining recent events to Tyrion. He learns that Jaime has advanced on the Tullys and won several battles in the process. He learns that Eddard is in prison. Robert Baratheon is dead, and Joffrey is now king. It seems that Rob Stark is advancing on Tywin with an army of Northmen at his back. Then Tywin plays upon the pride of the mountain clans and convinces them to fight alongside his army. Shella agrees, but on the condition that Tyrion goes into battle with them. So, David, would you like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? (laughs) Well, it's always fun to read uh, these early books before... um... Shaga has removed Tyrion's manhood and fed it to the goats. I hope that's not a spoiler. Um, no, we're not worried about spoilers. And you know what? The funny thing is, whenever I see Tyrion's name at the he- at a chapter heading, part of the fun is knowing that you're going to laugh a few times that chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, not every character is going to do that for you. And, you know, Tyrion's interesting in any number of ways. But one of the ways he's interested interesting is that he will make you laugh a few times and you also laugh at him a few times you know and and i think he almost invites sometimes laughter at his own expense yeah it's uh i mean of course and just 
him as the character it's one of his best defense mechanisms one of them is being smarter than the person he's talking to the other mm-hmm. is being able to make them laugh um and sometimes at his expense it's just kind of like a a wild one-two punch it's like you know uh it's like first i'm smarter than you and you can't keep up with me but then mm-hmm. as that might start make you to feel defensive it's like oh but look at me i'm such a silly clown and then it's yeah. like oh okay and then basically you're just not engaging with him anymore and that's right. what he wanted <laughs> yeah it kind of yeah it does put people off balance like they might be a little bit intimidated or insulted or something along those lines but then someone in the room is going to start laughing and that brings a whole you know a host of other problems into the situation so he's always a problem for anyone he's talking to because you don't know of how he's going to defeat you you know <laughs> Yeah, but there's um, there's a lot in this in this chapter that I I really I really really enjoy something. Uh, well, before getting into the Taiwan stuff, there's um, there's something here that I really like because I think it points up what I think is one of the largest themes of the entire work. So let me see if I can find it. At here we go. So there's this uh, section where. Tyrion has decided well he's just like all right that we're just gonna go back and forth you know endlessly here so he just gets on his horse and goes knowing mm-hmm. that they have to follow or not uh and then we have um that was the trouble with the clans they had an absurd notion that every man's voice should be heard in council so they argued about everything endlessly yeah. even their women were allowed to speak small wonder that it had been hundreds of years since they last threatened the veil vale with anything beyond an occasional raid Tyrion meant to change that. Um, and I think that it, it makes sense that this is in the first book, because I think that one of the main themes of the entire work is that, you know, absolute rule is ridiculous. There's no such thing sure. as chosen people. There's no reason that, you know, somebody with royal blood is a better ruler than somebody who just has some good ideas. Right. And so his reaction here, you know, makes sense for this early stage like you know what nonsense look at these clowns who everybody gets to have their say um and the measuring stick he uses is that's why they haven't conquered anybody right as if that was the measure of a good society whether (laughs) whether they've threatened somebody's lands or taken their lands as if that was the only purpose to life um and so, like, this is kind of like one of, a, a nice little nugget right at the beginning, as we see, I think, the beginning of Tyrion's journey. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons that his in, interactions with, um, oh, goodness, starts with a V, eunuch, help me. Varys, yeah. Varys, that's one of his reasons his interactions with him are so important, as he's constantly reminding him that he does, he does things for the realm. He does things for the, the small folk. And of course, he's yeah. coming from the Lannisters, who are just the, um, the absolute you know, paradigm of class rule and autocratic right. rule, with his father being chief among them. This is a nice little yes. introduction, I think, to yes. that. Yes, whatever else Tyrion is... He is absolutely the upper crust of society, right? Yep. And when he's seen success, he's seen his father. I mean, his father could be the most successful person in the realm. Yeah. He's not king, but he's been hand of the king for sure. And, you know, the kings kings come groveling to Tywin Lannister when they need money, you know, things Mm -hmm. like that. So his model for leadership is pretty skewed. Right. <laughs> yeah. And this is still pretty early in Tyrion's character arc. You know, he's met the the Night's Watch. He's he's seen a different sort of leadership model or something like that. Right. But for most of his life, the models that he's had for success are these very, very powerful, if not autocrats, then, you know, oligarchs or something like that. Yeah. So that's... um Again, it's a small thing. And then, of course, you know, you have these part of the reason, like the, the you know, these uh, these mountain men, they're played up to be very crass, right? And there's, and you know, there's a, a reason for that. Uh, and because I think that one of the ideas here, all right, so he finds out that his, 
his the Lannisters are camped nearby, and so he's going to show up and be like, "Look, you know, here I am," mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But I almost think that the gathering of this group of warriors is kind of a one of those tests for his father to say, "Well, uh, here I am, and look these." These crude, crass people <laughs> saved me, and I've promised them things. Now here they are. I'm dumping them in your lap uh, as, a, as a little jape. But of course, Tywin, the smartest man in the room, once yeah. again throws Tyrion off guard by completely doing the best thing that you could do in that situation. He knows who they are. Uh-huh. He flatters them. He, yes. he says that uh, I will give you everything that I promised and more, and then even doubles back on it. Where it's like, well, just we're not get it just because you say, right? He's like, no, you know, you've you've earned it, and 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 so on. He he just yeah says instantly without hesitation the exact right thing, even when the other people in the room, even when Kevin Lannister, are like recoiling at these people that they detest. Yeah, going for his sword, thinking that this may have to come to blows here, right in the middle of the war council. Mm-hmm. Just very quietly, Tywin assesses the situation, uh, says, okay, well, fight alongside me. And then, of course, you know, the response is, well, your son has already made a promise. Why, why do we need another promise from the father? Mm-hmm. And Tywin immediately says, no promise, just courtesy. You don't have to fight alongside me. These these Northmen are very fierce, and even our best warriors are afraid. And then, of course, that <laughs> yep that pricks the pride just a little bit. And all of a sudden, you've got you know you've got another what uh, you know six hundred people in your army that you didn't have before. Yep, and it was just it was the perfect thing to do. And then it of was course, the perfect thing to do. Absolutely, and, and it's just. It's just another case where it's just like, well, Tyrion tried to get one over on his father, and his father got one over on him. Yeah. It's it's the it's the first time that that we see it, um, mm-hmm. which will become. And a theme. Tywin achieves three things with that. Number one, he achieves more men for his army. Right. Mm-hmm. Number two, he's got a, a Lannister always pays his debt, so he has to make good on Tyrion's promise for the pride of his right. own house. But the third thing he accomplishes is that if he puts these men at on the front lines yep <laughs> there will be fewer of them to pay off at the end <laughs> and he can do all of he can do all three things with just the perfect two lines <laughs> yep it, it's quite brilliant it's quite brilliant and, and it's like and it really does demonstrate how he's just on another level because mm-hmm. of course the natural reaction for somebody you know of his classes would be exactly kevin lannister's which was yeah. hey we have our entire army here uh i take out my sword these people will be done with you know yeah yeah uh, just one other thing about the mountain clans i do want to talk more about tywin i mm-hmm. um so sometimes what George will do to antiquate English vocabulary is to use a kenning. Mm. And I've, I've learned this from my medievalist friends. Uh, I think my friend Jana Matthews taught me this. And one of the things that the mountain clan folk call Tyrion is a boy man. Mm-hmm. So it's two words pressed together. And it's immediately recognizable to any English speaker, and they know exactly by context that, you know, Tyrion's height is being played upon, right? But here's what I find interesting. George never places this kenning on the lips of anyone else in the series. So he's created this kenning, I don't know, out of thin air. I don't know if he's ever seen this uh, in ancient literature or anything like this. But he's created this, and he's decided that this is something that is unique to these mountain clans. Uh, it's used just a couple times of Tyrion by the mountain folk, and it's never used again. And I just thought, you know what? That's someone who's paying attention to the details of the world he's creating. Yeah, and that actually leads me to uh, something else that I wanted to, to say about this chapter. Oh, good. Uh, and it will get into Tywin. 
But uh, if you if you read up to the introduction of Tywin Lannister, where mm-hmm. uh, where Tyrion enters the inn, um, if this were your only chapter, there's really no indication that Tyrion is anything but a full sized adult, aside from the use of boy man, a couple of times, um, which without background could mean any number of things we know what it means because we know uh uh Tyrion size but um yeah but that that is it after he is there with tywin this is where you start to see some different things uh yeah for example uh, he crossed the room to their table acutely conscious of the way his stunted legs made him waddle with every yeah. step before this, there wasn't a thought. And there are several other mentions uh, in this exchange about Tyrion's height. Because basically around his father, he that is when he starts to think of what he sees or what he's been told are his shortcomings. And otherwise, he pretty much just thinks of himself as a person. So I think all of us do. Um, but I thought that was, I mean, because this is not, it's not as if his father says anything about it or anything says any, anybody yeah. says anything about it, but it's just in the description to give you a sense of where his mind goes, because this is what happens. Every right. time he interacts with Tywin, he's off his game. He's thinking about his own, he's thinking about his body. He's very conscious of himself as a person mm-hmm. and very self-conscious of what he's saying and what he's doing, the decisions he's made. Um, and it really is just the presence of Tywin Lannister that does it. Uh, and I thought it was just portrayed very well. Yeah. I love George that R. passage. I'm going to read a little bit more of that passage, but before I do, I want to ask you, I want to understand your premise. Hmm. Are you saying that until this point in the book, no one has, no one has commented on Tyrion's no, no, no. height. No, 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 no. This chapter. Okay. This chapter. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, up until this point in the chapter. Yes, I in see. the chapter. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely like that. And I think that in addition to that, there's a lot of focus on Tywin's eyes in this chapter. Mm. And I'm just going to read this passage and and listen to Tyrion. This is from Tyrion's perspective. Listen to what he says about his father's eyes. And I'm especially interested in this because of what you just said. He is always worried about how he looks in his father's eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Here's how Tywin's introduced. Tywin Lannister, Lord of Casterly Rock and Warden of the West, was in his middle 50s, yet as hard as a man of 20. Even seated, he was tall, with long legs, broad shoulders, a flat stomach. His thin arms were corded with muscle. When his once thick golden hair had begun to recede, he had commanded his barber to shave his head. Lord Tywin did not believe in half measures. Interesting choice of words there. Yeah. (laughs) He razored his lip and chin as well, but kept the side whiskers. Two great thickets of wiry golden hair that covered most of his cheeks from ear to jaw. His eyes were a pale green flecked with gold, a fool more foolish than most had once jested that even Lord Tywin's shit was flecked with gold. Some said that the man was still alive, deep in the bowels of Casterly Rock. And then a little bit later on in the, on the same page, it says, Whenever his father's eyes were on him, he became uncomfortably aware of his deformities and shortcomings. So it's interesting. Who is revealed by whom in this story? Tywin is revealed by Tyrion because those two reflect upon each other right it's Tywin's eyes that we meet in this chapter and the eyes are important because the eyes are exactly what makes Tyrion feel the most discomfort yeah I always like to think about it the other way too because it's like you really get the sense of this man as a father as well because it's like it's (laughs) I mean he's seeing his son that was taken captive uh, uh-huh. for the first time. And in, in fact, in the very spot that he was taken captive. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And that makes Tyrion, that tickles Tyrion. 
Yeah. You know, he kind of laughs like, oh, he's at the end of the crossroads. Maybe the, maybe the gods are just after all. <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's a reversal of fortunes of, of a kind. And yet Tyrion is, you know, again, you know, Tyrion is put at a disadvantage by Catelyn. He's going back to the same place to be put at a disadvantage by Tywin. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> so I, just a brilliant little bit of writing. Every now and again, you know, you, you're reminded in this book at how interesting these characters are and how complex the, you know, the, how, how their plots will intertwine with one another. And also that George R. R. Martin, you know, as a, as a writer, far from being, you know, a swooper, which one would never guess, but, you know, he's definitely a basher and somebody mm-hmm. that um, makes sure to reread, you know, earlier sections and then across different books, it's, it's of course crass and somewhat amusing that the way that we are introduced to Tywin is also the way that he dies. Uh, Interesting. Yes, of course, it's the the you know the shit flecked mm-hmm. gold. His his what does it say that his even his shit is flecked with gold? Mm-hmm. And then of course we were reminded that he dies on the shitter, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the last line of that chapter. Uh, it was something along the lines of. Um, uh, and uh, it proved to be a falsehood that oft-told tale about Tywin. He, he does not shoot <laughs> gold. I forgot about that. That's yeah. so great. That's so great. So that's a nice little bookend. Uh, on that there are uh, there are very small things in here. At least I believe that his uh, his father is trying to insult him, but he's not taking it, or at least insult mm-hmm. him in some standard ways. Such as, for example, he's here now. Well, there are there are a, a couple of things that he sees as nuisances um, that he would probably ignore. But since Tyrion is here, maybe he'll give him a few men to go take care mm-hmm. of the guys raiding their supply lines behind, you know, the stage of battle, uh, and then also this uh, Beric Dondarrion, who he <laughs> sure sees as kind of an annoyance. Um, which... yeah, he's trying to give Tyrion the some responsibility, but not anything that would be a catastrophe if he flummoxed, you know? Yeah, the kind of thing where it's like, you know, the grown-ups are discussing things. Uh, here's here's a ball. <laughs> Why don't you go and play with it? Um... Yeah. Well, and on top of that, when he first walks in the room, you know, Tywin is totally just sitting there as if <laughs> he's almost annoyed that Tyrion's come in mm-hmm. and Tyrion says how's your war coming he's like well i mean by my by my view of it you started this war your brother would never have acquiesced to a woman taking him hostage yeah right and of course a lesser character would have defended himself you know he would have said well, you don't know the situation it was an impossible she had a dozen men and you know he doesn't say any of that he says well my brother and i have a few differences you might have noticed you know he's a little taller than i am for instance <laughs> so not only does he doesn't he doesn't take the bait he knows his father does not like that kind of banter and so by sort of deflecting the accusation really of being, you know, he, he's being feminized. You know, you were yeah. you were bested by a woman you, that would have never happened to your brother. Uh, he does not. I mean, he might internalize the insult and maybe he has internalized the insult, you know, over the last 30 years of his life. But he knows how to deflect from his father's insults. You know, he's become a master at it. Um, and also, by the way, that does end up happening to his brother. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely does happen to his yeah. brother. But um, uh, some sure. one other little bit that I found really interesting from this chapter is there is a moment of almost paternal pride from Tywin. Hmm. And it has nothing to do with Jamie or Tyrion. It has to do with Rob. It's when the guy. It's when the guy comes in and says that Rob Stark is is marching south. Oh, that's such a good point. That's good, that is the moment really where he's like, "Wow, look at that! He's done it. The wolf has come to play with the lions, or or, or whatever." And it's like, 
it was a type of thing where it's uh it wasn't necessarily totally unexpected but it was a a bit of a surprise and if you the way you read it it's almost like it was a pleasant surprise it's like Mm. look at that the boy is becoming a man interesting and it's like of all the spots where there might be a moment of kind of paternal familiarity and warmth that was it (laughs) right sure yes he absolutely i'm trying to find this passage because it's such a great passage the door banged open again the messenger gave Tyrion's clansman a quick queer look as he dropped one knee before lord tywin my lord he said sir adam bid me tell you the stark host is moving down the causeway lord tywin lannister did not smile Lord Tywin never smiled, but Tyrion learned to read his father's pleasure all the same, and it was there on his face. So the wolfling is leaving his den to play among the lions, he said, in a voice of quiet satisfaction. Splendid. Return to Sir Adam and tell him to fall back. He is not to engage the the northerners until we arrive, but I want him to harass their flanks and draw them farther south. So you're right. He's he, he's pleased by it. He's satisfied by it. He doesn't smile, but Tyrion knows how to read his father's face. Mm-hmm. I didn't read it as paternal pride, but now that you say that, it works even better for me as paternal pride because this is something Tyrion would never do, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is something Tyrion probably will never do, but he's almost reveling in this idea that this young buck is coming to his own as sort of an adult warrior that's his vision of manhood right yep <laughs> and juxtapose, juxtapose with Tyrion, it really bites you know this is that rob stark is the son <laughs> you know is, is the son that tywin wished he wished he had yeah i mean it's like you know, Jamie is a is a great warrior, but at the same time, has the whole thing with Cersei, and you know, uh-huh. well, in so many ways, Jamie refuses to take himself seriously. Yep. Uh, you know, he, he refuses to marry and father children, become the rightful lord of Casterly Rock. You know, in in so many ways, uh, Tywin is dissatisfied with his own children. Um. That leads to me to a, a few book and show differences. I think this is not Tywin's first scene in the show. You have that wonderful introduction to Charles Dance in the HBO adaptation. He is skinning a stag, yeah. uh-huh. right? Why is he still alive? Tyrion? Ned Stark. One of our men interfered. Speared him through the leg before I could finish him. Why is he still alive? It wouldn't have been clean. You spend too much time worrying about what other people think of you. I could care less what anyone thinks of me. That's what you want people to think of you. It's the truth. When you hear them whispering Kingslayer behind your back, doesn't it bother you? Of course it bothers me. A lion doesn't concern himself with the opinions of a sheep. I suppose I should be grateful that your vanity got in the way of your recklessness. I'm giving you half of our forces. 30,000 men. We'll bring them to Catelyn Stark's girlhood home and remind her that Lannisters pay their debts. I didn't realize you placed such a high value on my brother's life. He's a Lannister. Might be the lowest of the Lannisters, but he's one of us. And every day that he remains a prisoner, the less our name commands respect. So the lion does concern himself with the opinions of... No, that's not an opinion. It's a fact. If another house can seize one of our own and hold him captive with impunity, we are no longer a house to be feared. Your mother's dead. Before long, I'll be dead. And you, and your brother, and your sister, and all of her children. All of us dead, 
All of us rotting in the ground. It's the family name that lives on. It's all that lives on. Not your personal glory, not your honor, but family. Do you understand? None of that is in the books, right? Uh, but I think it's a wonderful introduction. So there, there, there's a book difference for you. The other difference that I noted that I again, I love this in the show is that Braun is introduced in the show. You know, Tyrion is going around the room saying, "This is Shaga, son of Dolph." You know, this is. You know, he's going around introducing everyone, and he says, "And this is Braun, son of." And Braun has this great line. He says, "No one you've ever heard of, <laughs> or you wouldn't know him." <laughs> and I love that that Braun has a little bit of you know wit and wisdom in the face of his high lord. Uh, again, not in the book, but a way that the show really sort of takes off. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, notable introductions in the chapters. Uh, well, we hear a lot. We're we're pretty deep into this book, and it's not often that we will see so many new things introduced in a chapter so late. But of course, Tywin's introduced in person. Kevin Lannister's introduced in person. Uh, Sir Flemont Brax and his horse with the unicorn helm. For the very first time, we hear the Lannister words. And they are not, a Lannister always pays his debts. It is, hear me roar, which is which is a really so stupid slogan. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> uh, yeah, so hear me roar. And then we meet uh, Chella and Timmit and his one good eye and a few other, uh, you know, mountain folk as well. Uh, So a lot of interesting and important introductions in this chapter. And I don't think any notable departures uh, in this chapter. No one, I don't think anyone dies or departs never to be seen again, uh, notably in this chapter. Well, aside from the, uh, the inn owner. Oh yeah, we we find out that the inn owner has been killed. Do we know why? Did Tywin just didn't like the look of his jib or something? I mean, uh, presumably it's just because well, we need this place. Uh, the, the the inn at the crossroads is the only thing left standing, um, and I I presume it's because I mean, based on you know the way Tywin works, it's not as if there was any malice in it. It's yeah. uh, it was like well here's this village um, this is the best building in it so we're going to destroy the village uh, and kill everybody inside the building so that I can take up residence here. Yeah, um, right. Very huh. very coldly done, very calculating. Sure. Not as if he was angry with this person. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That is, that is Tywin, right? And this person's life is barely an ant. Yeah. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. 
the thrills of King's Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked, and they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe! Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. And now Steve and I cover episode seven of season six, The Broken Man. John and Sansa and Davos are preparing for battle in the north. Arya gets stabbed in the guts. We have the return of the Blackfish vis-a-vis Jamie's siege of River Run. But most importantly, we have the return of the Hound. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, the Hound is back. The Hound is back. You thought the Hound was dead, didn't you? Uh, yes, and I feel a little dumb for thinking it now. <laughs> well, because obviously he's alive, so that's one thing. But also, it was like, <laughs> you never, ever leave someone to die. Yeah, you think no. You're, gonna die. you're not supposed to do that. Because there may be, like, a septum around the corner of the mountain. Apparently. There's Just... a septum at every turn, man. Yeah, so I mean, immediately, like, and I don't know what the fan reaction is, and I'm curious if if there is much of one at this. But it's like, I went from like, oh, he's back to like, uh, do I need him? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I was like, ever find something you lost that you didn't miss? Sure. First reaction is like, oh my gosh, there it is, and you're like, uh. I was just thrilled. I was thrilled with the ian mcshane character yeah i thought he was wonderful and i think i enjoyed this episode even more like i always liked this episode but i think i enjoyed this episode even more having you as a viewing partner and i'll tell you why because you've made this point repeatedly that every now and again the show will give you like a little you know little drink of cold water like a like a little breath of fresh air. Yeah. And it's because there's so much muck and darkness in this show that if you just get a little bit of that, it's, it's enough to keep going. It's enough to keep going. And it's and it's somewhat thrilling. And I just kind of felt like, oh, this just is just a really likable dude. Like he's yeah. just a really he, like he knows who he is. I like the idea of like someone just sort of creating a little town, building a little sept, you know, getting a, you know, sharing food together, a little sort of Amish paradise or something. I yeah, yeah. Not everyone in this world has to be Littlefinger, right? Right. And, uh, and you don't, you don't necessarily have to be like as stupid as Mace Tyrell to yeah, not, to, to, to not, exactly. exact, not to not want to like climb the, the ladder of chaos. So he's, he's wonderful, right? So he's an awesome actor it's interesting character, you know, nurses the hound back to health and kind of sees goodness in the hound where no one else can. Well, and that's a great thing, right? Because we have we flirted with this idea during their adventures and then it sort of feels like, okay, no, he's just a scoundrel. But we had enough flirting to yeah. make it seem like, nah, I don't know, though. I mean, like what like he makes him compelling because you're like, what is your story, dude? Because you don't you're not a killing machine like we thought you were. And that is an interesting thing, even if we don't flesh it out entirely. But then with the Ian McShane thing, who obviously his character is also flawed. We get a little glimpse of that, you know. Um, but it's this idea that the idea of redemption not being so unattainable. Well, that's right. He was the hound. Like he, the, like it, who he describes himself as 
you know, before he, you know, got religion or whatever, he was basically the hound. Uh, you know, he was a murdering son of a bitch. And so I think the hound can look at this guy and think, uh, there, you know, there may be some hope, hope for me. And, you know, he's got a couple like really great laughs at the hound's expense. Yeah. And that kind of humanizes the hound a little bit. And you get to have this really interesting dialogue between a really well-intentioned pacifist and the hound who's like anything but a pacifist is like the anti-pacifist. Right. And then, of course, <laughs> he, get, he gets hanged in his own sept at the end. Which, I'll not be honest with you, I think that was the right amount of time for this character. Maybe so, and I kind of felt like, but it, it it was sort of jarring. It was sort of like, like we yeah, just but saw- I was just getting to like him. Exactly. And of course, it's like, nope, let me remind you that this is still Game of Thrones. Right, and this is a, you're getting you're getting a, a small little dose of cool water. We're not going to let you, yeah. not letting you relax, right? Yeah, just and enough, think- just enough to remind you what this show's all about. And it felt like at this point with, with having, uh, Jonathan Price still holding court, adding an Ian McShane starts to feel like it feels more like a show mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because you're immediately like, "Whoa, that's Ian McShane!" Um, <laughs> and, right. So, uh, so you can bring him in for one episode, right? And he and he's so good that like you feel like he's a character you've known for a while, right? Yeah, exactly. And then so when so when he gets dismissed, instead of it being like if it had been anybody else, I mean, I don't say anybody else. But like it would be, a, it would be a mean feat to to sit there and say uh, we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have this guy be introduced and then his death is gonna matter in the same episode. They'd be like, what? I think um, John Lovitz could have pulled it off. Lovitz would have been great um, <laughs> if he, yeah, especially if he just kept on peering around the corner and to deliver his lines. And after every line, say, acting. <laughs> <laughs> and so I flail. <laughs> No, so it's it is really something, and so it was enough, and I you need it because I I was on the fence about the return of the hound for a while, but it did sort of reignite a potential for you know now the thoughts of well what's his role? Well, right? it's interesting. I mean, it's like I think last time we talked about how in almost every episode of Game of Thrones someone dies, right? Right. And so there's so many people who have died that you're, you could have forgotten about the hound too, right? Which you did. And so when he comes back, it's, it's sort of like, yeah, I'm I'm glad. I I mean, I felt like I was glad he was back. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, I think, and I love the line he says, and he says, well, what, what kept you going all those years? Hate. (laughs) Just the one line, that one word hate. Yeah. He's very uh, clubber lying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's so perfect it was the perfect it was a perfect amount of dialogue for that scene right and so here you have you know again this pacifist and someone who's fueled by hate and now it's like okay well what happens now right i mean that is it's it, it gets me right because we did like the the hound at least to at least he was a compelling character so now you're like well where does his narrative go right like i mm-hmm. like i look at one of three ways um kind of depends on location too so i'm not real clear on where they are i'm assuming close by to where his he met his de- almost demise yeah, um, yeah but yeah, you've sure. got sansa who's quite a bit away and like he's kind of a been a protector of her but she seems pretty far out of reach um aria also the same situation but she also pretty much out of reach both of them could use a little a little muscle right now oh um, yeah absolutely absolutely and then, and then there's the you know the return to King's Landing in the event of a, uh, you know, a, a uh, trial of combat. It seems like there's a potential there, too. I think so. And I think that the fact two, that... Two resurrected uh, brothers. That's, right. is, is, that's kind of like, that's where I would like it to go. But very rarely does it do what I want. Yeah, I think so. And I think that... Um, so, be, I wrote... The, the part that I wrote about the Hound before was before season eight so i didn't really know what was going to happen but my my theory in in the book was that to say that okay so here we have the hound who's kind of getting a little bit of religion 
And so he could eventually be sort of this convert to the faith of the seven. At least enough to be. And that would make him a really great champion for the faith in the trial by combat. Right. Right. And and it it does kind of becomes full circle with, because I mean, we already know that the mountain is, is the choice of Cersei. Yeah. Having the hound, having, you know, kind of un ceremonies they left king's landing um all of that is like it's it's pretty ripe i mean that's it's a pretty good setup if that's the way where it goes but also well, it I would know be about good because he could he could end up getting killed by mace tyrell for some reason <laughs> that would be wonderful mace tyrell falls on the stairs and a sword flies out and it goes right into the hound set he's like who put those there and then, you know he's a hero <laughs> This this show this episode was very a lot of understated dialogue. So like I mentioned, like the hound saying just that one line hate, and here John is trying to accrue an army, right? And the giant one one just that one line, snow, snow. yeah, very understated, and then very understated exchange between Lady Elena and Marjorie where she doesn't even say a word she just draws a picture of a rose right and hands it to her grandmother you know just enough just give me enough information i don't need a lot i don't need a lot more than what you're giving me and so i i liked i liked the subtlety of that i think this is one of those great great balanced episodes that feel organic never feel like you're taken out uh you get just enough information to to know where things are going but that sets up this payoff where Sansa writes a letter. Right. Okay. And I think we all know where this is going. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, this is going to the veil, right? I would imagine. I mean, who else? Who? I mean, well, so who else is on her on her list? I mean, everywhere she's gone, she can't ever go back. Yeah, there's no one else. She's got no one else. She. I mean, it's not like. I mean, Tyrion would probably help her if he could, but he's way she out. Know. Right, and if she if she knows that he's out there, but like he's not coming back for this, and what's he gonna do? Yeah, right. right. So you need you need so if if the intent is for it to be like oh I wonder who it's like immediately like even Heather like reaches like oh no not a little finger but that's but that has to be right and not only that but I think it's it's important to keep this going because Littlefinger this is all like there's so much of this that has his fingerprints on it anyway. She's so she's learned a few things right. And I think uh, some she of doesn't what, trust him, but then she does this anyway. I think that that's part of what she's learned is that you don't need to trust someone to use them. Got it. You just get what they need. And, and if you know that you can't trust them, uh-huh. then it almost doesn't matter that you can't trust them. And I think it's one of those things where it's like, okay, so John may be good at sort of rallying troops. What am I good at? Right. And I think she's learned like, well, I'm actually not so bad at doing the kinds of things that Littlefinger would do. Like, in other words, I don't think it's such a bad thing for Sansa to ask herself at this point, what would Littlefinger do if he was in this situation? Because mm. he, he's a total turd, but at the same time, he's really good at what he does. Right. And he's if he's in a position to where he may be trying to curry my favor he might i might be able to even catch him off guard to some degree yeah that's right and also he has no loyalty to anybody so it's like well why him, you know I mean, there is that other risk though right that that uh he then cuts a deal with the boltons oh yeah you can't trust Littlefinger at all but uh, there was that sort of um i guess a couple episodes ago Littlefinger basically talks robin into going to defend right. uh, sansa or something so you get the sense that they're already on their way north yeah yeah did you catch the one of the fray son so Ed, we, edmure comes back the last episode right that was a big reveal and i was kind of like huh <laughs> yeah it was sort of the music played that up as if it was a big room yeah. yeah and then there's edmure it's like oh that's right there was an edmure what happened was they, they thought it was going to be a big deal and everyone's kind of like meh yeah and then they're like well shoot let's bring back the hound next, next episode <laughs> that one and didn't, didn't do it 
so one of the phrase <laughs> zombie Joffrey. <laughs> one of the phrase sons that is sort of engaged in a siege. Yeah, that's a quite a quite a term for it. Uh, his name is Lothar. Did you oh, did you catch that? I did not catch it. It's Lothar. That's incredible. <laughs> much as he's seen and much as he's done. He needs advice on how to walk with women, Steve. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so Lothar was what. A- one of his names, and and the you know Bron's back now. I we haven't seen Bron in a while, right? Yeah, Bron just sort of chilling. So, I think that Bron and the Hound have a couple similarities. You know, they're both killers. They're both sort of, you know, they're tough guys, basically. Killers with a heart of gold. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> I don't know if Bron has a heart of gold, but I think he's just he's charming at least. He's a he, boy. He's charming. He's yeah, charming. he's more charming <laughs> than the hound. That's for that's sure. For sure. Uh, it's it's interesting that you say that because I think my sense is that the hound does have something, some sort of little spark of good deep down, right? But he's like, it's sort of obscured by the fact that he's so not charming, right? Whereas I think Braun is super charming, and like deep down, he, I think he's just a sociopath. I think yeah. that like there's oh, no okay. spark of goodness in him. He just kind of can put on a show for for his own benefit. That's interesting. So I mean, I, I, the, both of those. I love to see both of those characters on screen. Um, so Braun and Jamie are back, and um, apparently they're the only people in this entire region that know how to dig a trench. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that trench is important. Um, all right, and then of course, uh, so we got some characters back that we haven't seen since the Red Wedding, right? So this guy, this old guy that's got the castle, is the Blackfish, right? So we haven't seen him since the Red Wedding, and Edmure, of course, is is back uh, from that episode, and then 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 the the uh, the phrase who, who right. Right. committed the atrocity who are now kind of just bumbling right i mean which oh absolutely how do you feel about that because they were they were a big part of of one of the most major episodes in the series thus far and kind of disassembling the entire battle of the five kings and now they're goofy but you know what they've got steve they've got hoods doesn't take much for you. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're not even in the cold and they got hoods on. <laughs> I mean, it just so it just, just seems like I'm like, all right, they kind of seem like comic relief. I'm like, but they were really, but huh? They're but pretty they, bad. They're pretty bad. They're but bad not guys. only that, but they just like, they seem like they were pretty effective in pulling that off for that particular episode. And now they're kind of like, you know, well, all right, let's give credit where credit's due. All right, so the people that deserve credit for the Red Wedding are Tywin and Walder Frey, right? Sure. These are two old, hardened old veterans of a hundred different machinations. And so these guys are just cutthroats. Basically, that's what they are. And they do kind of give off a Keystone Cop kind of vibe, which, you know. Didn't bug you. I guess I just didn't have very high. I didn't have a very high opinion of them in the first place. Yeah, but I mean, I think it, it. You know, they didn't go in there and like haphazardly wipe out Rob's army. Now I'm like, wait a minute. What what happened to the good or the 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 ones that were good at their job? See, here's the thing. I don't think it took much. I think it was sort of like all of the strategy was. I guess Bolton belonged to someone it, right? else, and Maybe then. Because the Boltons, or or at least Roos, is, is a part of this, so you have you have some, yeah, 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 the, the A plus exactly. people, I guess, that put others in the right spot. I guess it's these the whole, guys. It, it, these guys can be trusted to like stick a knife in someone's back, right? They can't like, be trusted yeah. to like win a war for you. It's like it's like guys that like it's like Mike Shanahan could coach up any running back to get a thousand yards. It's all about scheme. And you need a, you need like a Bolton and a Tywin to just just put the players in the right position. 
where they, they can't get in their own way. That's right. So no Danny in this episode. We do have, however, Arya get it in the guts. Yeah, Arya gets it in the guts, and you knew it, man. I knew as soon as that 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 old lady walked over, we we both yeah. were like, ah, get away, <laughs> gotta go. She looks exactly like the, uh, the the Disney queen who gives Snow White the apple. Yeah, I mean that was uh, yeah. So that's that's that was that's fascinating, right? I mean that's. So Arya gets it in the guts, and gets in the that guts. same move killed Jojen. I mean, yeah. So there you go. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. Of course, there is the hound, right? So don't trust any off-screen death. Which is which is helpful to some degree, right? So in the same episode that you go, well, geez, she's going to be left to die. Well, we last time we saw that she left someone to die. Mm-hmm. Didn't didn't finish that way so that that's a little bit of, of hopefulness i guess curious what you think about lady mormont she's the little girl the whole time i'm thinking man anthony has to hate this scene so i ruined it for you didn't i um mm, no but it was it, i was thinking about you the whole time <laughs> i did i ruined it for you yeah I'm, so, I'm sorry for ruining it for you i actually like her Oh, really? But if Wes Anderson had directed her, you'd be all upset. <laughs> Kids can't talk like adults. That's I, I like crazy. Wes Anderson. I like Wes Anderson a lot. <laughs> but you don't like it when he has kids talking like adults. Not always. I mean, a lot of times it works and a lot of times it doesn't. This For some reason, this time it works. You, you were totally fine with foxes talking. Foxes are fine. Foxes, foxes can foxes talk. Foxes talking, even children foxes talking like adult foxes is no problem for you. Mm-hmm. But it's the it's just when Moonrise Kingdom. I, this is where I just I feel like I feel like you were trying to be too <laughs> hip for the hipsters. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I tell you what. I don't know what it was about. You don't Lady get to Mormont. get Lady Mormont and then also poo poo Moonrise Kingdom. You have to do some atonement. A girl has the right to change her mind, Steve. <laughs> That's my prerogative. I, mean, I, like the, I like the dialogue. It was all fun back and forth, but it was a little bit like, it's interesting because, you know, we've seen kids in charge. You know what? Davos has been preparing his entire life to make this little speech. <laughs> Gosh, that was the other thing. I'm like, oh, here we go. Here we go. He's been practicing on Shireen for like the last three years. Just sitting there watching Rob and Sansa not getting anywhere. I'm like, gee, if oh yeah, they're just like if fumbling over their words, somebody. and he just knows he's got like the Valyrian steel of speeches in his. He's just itching. He's over there, just like ah, oh, he wants to snap his fingers, but he can't, and he's just like, oh, oh, hey, like, it almost seems like you could use maybe some folksy wisdom right about now. <laughs> You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full spoiler-filled first-round movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk podcast where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is reward unto itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. We 
try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. But some people aren't a joining type, or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage, or for a podcast that really spoke to them or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these, and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.ballmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.ballmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. For this week's Birds of You, I asked Chad, where's the climax to this book? And I've been asking a few different people this. And I haven't got a good answer yet. So I'll include a short excerpt of my conversation with Chad, although it does include a stupid error on my part. More importantly, I'd like to use this little excerpt as a springboard to ask for your feedback. The question is simple. Where is the climax to this book? There's no doubt that in the show... The climax is Ned's beheading, but that happens off-page in the book. I don't think we can call that the climax. So where is it? Here are a few options. It's the return of dragons to the world, but maybe placed too close to the ending to be considered the climax? Is it John's defeat of the White and his reception of Longclaw? Is that it? Another option, is there no climax to this book? Is there only an anti-climax? I will definitely entertain that. Tell me what you think, book at baldmove.com. Also, just to reiterate my question at the beginning, in your opinion, who is the best villain in television or screen history? For my money, it's Tywin Lannister. Okay, here's my conversation with Chad. I've been asking folks about, about the climax of this book. And I don't know if I've asked you yet. Have I talked to you about the climax of this book yet? I don't think so. All right. Where's the climax of this book? I, I mean, of course, I immediately think of when Ned dies. Yeah, I think a lot of people do think that. Yeah. But if you go to the Arya chapter where that happens, she doesn't actually see the beheading. Right. And it's all very anticlimactic. Like the, the sword raises she recognizes it as ice and then she gets captured and you know Yorin basically spirits her away yeah and so the actual beheading happens off off screen or off page or whatever and then later on Sansa thinks about it and then she, she remembers her father's legs but she can't she can't even think about the image of the head part. So we never see the head come off the body. Right. How is that the climax? It's it's a very interesting anticlimax, yeah. unless that's not the climax of the book. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Cormac McCarthy does something like that in No Country for Old Men, mm. uh, where when the, uh, when, the, when the good guy and the bad guy finally make contact with each other, it sort of all happens off camera, so to speak. And you, you what you end up seeing is the aftermath. Mm, it's been several, it's probably been a decade since I read that book. Yeah. Well, a lot of people will have seen the movie too. And yeah. I think they do the same thing in the movie where they have their confrontation at a motel uh-huh. and, um, and you just come into the motel where the, where there's been all this, I think there's a car crash and there's all sorts of, uh, mm-hmm you know, chaos has clearly gone down and, um, and yet you never got to see it. That happens in old country for old men too. Uh, yeah, that's what I said. No country for old men. Oh, I I think you were, I, when I heard you say that for whatever reason, I thought of the road. Ah, right. Uh, so total misperception on my part. Yeah. I'm talking about no, no country for old men. That's why I don't remember that part in the road. Because it happened in no country for old men. <laughs> 